I wanted to take some time to discuss an issue that we only got to touch on in Sunday School this past week, but I was wanting to say more about, and I, I thought I'd take this opportunity to do so. It's the issue of discrimination and disparities, discrimination and disparities between various uh, different groups. Of course, speaking specifically of white Americans and black Americans, because no one should deny that there are real disparities in the number of those in prison, white versus black, the, the, the median household income, white versus black. There are major disparities between white Americans and black Americans, economically, uh, in terms of crime, in terms of prison time, there, there's major disparities. And these are not insignificant disparities. These are not disparities that are meant to be ignored. These are not things we act like aren't happening or don't exist. But we want to know the real reason for them. And I grant you, you, you would really need God's omniscience to fully understand why everything is exactly the way it is. I don't claim to have anywhere near the, the full knowledge on this that you really need to be able to parse out every single variable. But I, I do want to at least say enough to suggest that univariate analyses are far too simple and distort the truth and actually have dangerous consequences. By, by univariate analyses, I mean one variant, one reason is given for why something is the way it is. And in our culture today, in the woke mindset, the critical race theory mindset that we're living in, the, the critical social justice worldview that is pervasive in our society, from corporations to education to college to schools to public education, it's just, it's just everywhere. It's entertainment. Uh, you, you have to go along with this narrative or you get canceled or, or kicked out. But that narrative is telling us that there is a univariant cause. There is a single reason for the disparities between white and black Americans. And that one cause is white supremacy. That one cause is discrimination by white people against and towards black people. And that is the one primary or sole reason for the disparities that exist in America between white and black Americans. That's what I want to push back against. I, I am not saying that racism has not in the past played a real role in the disparities. I am not saying that present disparities are in no way connected to past discrimination. That's not what I'm saying. I have no doubt that, well, you know, however many uh, years, well over a century, two centuries of, of slavery is going to have massive lingering effects on those who were enslaved, on their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, etc., I don't want to minimize that. I don't want to ignore that. Segregation and Jim Crow laws up until the 1960s are going to have real and negative effects on the African-American community. And if there are lingering effects today, I don't want to be unaware of that. But I think it is far too simple to say that past and present white supremacy, past and present racism, past and present discrimination by majority culture against minority cultures is the one reason for the disparities or even the primary reason for disparities. And that, that, that's probably the more controversial part of, of what I want to talk about. So to try to build my argument here, let's start with a different issue, and then we'll move towards the racial issue itself. So let, let's start with this issue. Statistics are very easy to access here. In prison today, 93% of prisoners in the United States are... <clears throat> and this is not a white or black thing, 93% of prison inmates today are male. 
6.9%, so 7% of prison inmates are female. Now, that is a massive disparity between two different groups. An enormous disparity. Just if you want to see what the pie chart looks like, it's almost hilariously sad when you look at that. So male to female, there is a massive disparity in gender between male and female in our prison system today. Massive disparity. 93% to 7%. Now, is that due? If, if, if disparities are due to discrimination, then we would have to argue that the reason why 93% of prisoners are male and 7% are female is because of a massive systemic discriminatory bias against men. We would have to argue that if disparity equals discrimination, then our culture massively targets and discriminates against unjustly through mere prejudice and bias and, and, and sinful discrimination just targets men. And just blames men for all the problems and, 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 and incarcerates men for, for violent crimes and murders and burglaries at a far disproportionate rate to women uh, th than 50-50. And so this must be due to a deep bias and a kind of misandry, right? A, a kind of hatred of men, a sexism against men. Now, anybody who sees this data thinks that's absurd. I don't know a single person with a straight face who is arguing for the fact that this massive disparity between men and women is due to discrimination against men. If anything, our culture, people say, is built by men to help men. It's a patriarchal society to benefit men, and you have male privilege. And if you try to tell someone otherwise, then you're mansplaining to a woman and blah, 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 blah. No, we're told that this culture is against women and for men. Well, why is it then that 93% of prison inmates are men and 7% are women? If all discrimination, if all, if all differences are due to uh, discrimination, then that does not make any sense. Let's continue with our statistics here. 90% of the murders in America are committed, it's not white or black, 90% of the murders in America are committed by men. 98%, 98% of the sexual assaults are committed by men. 93% of the armed burglaries are committed by men. And 88% of simple assaults are committed by men. That's, that's the data right there. Now, is this the result, this massive disparity, is this a result of discrimination? No. I mean, I'll be honest. If I was a police officer, we could all be thankful that I'm not a police officer. That would not end well for anybody. I don't know what I would be doing out there. But if I was a police officer, uh, I, I have no doubt that if I was called to a domestic violence dispute and I was called to a home... I would be likely more suspicious of the husband than the wife or the boyfriend than the girlfriend. That doesn't mean the, the girlfriend or the wife can't be a physical threat. It doesn't mean she can't have a gun or a weapon. It doesn't mean she can't even try to murder someone. That's, that's not true. Certainly she, she could. But because the, 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 the disparities are so vast, I'm going to be naturally a little bit more going, what's this guy going to do, right? And so there, there might be a degree. Of discrimination there that, that that might be real but that cannot account for the majority of these statistics these statistics are due to the fact that men commit far more crimes than women at least of a violent nature men commit far more murders than men men commit far more robberies than men the, the men commit far more robberies than women men commit far more sexual assaults than women this is not because i hate men i'm not saying this because i'm anti-man i am a man I'm simply saying what is true. I'm embarrassed of this fact. I, I, I wish this wasn't the case, that men committed these, this degree of these kinds of crimes. But it doesn't change the fact that it is true. It, it is true. Now, when and by the way, when you think about jobs, there are disparities everywhere you look.
there are a there there are a uh, there's a and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but there's a major disparity in terms of nurses. There are far more female nurses than male nurses. Uh, I only know maybe one, maybe more, but I, I think I only maybe known one male nurse. Is a great guy, but the vast majority of nurses I've known and the ma- vast majority of nurses who work in in the hospitals are female. Is this again misandry? Is this a kind of discrimination against men in the workplace? Is this a kind of anti-male bias that is at work here in the hospitals across our nation? No, of course not. What about this? There are far more women who work at daycares than there are men. Far more women work uh, at daycares than than men. Is this a dis- kind of anti-male bias? Well, no, I, I don't see any evidence of that. Well, how about this? Far more men are plumbers than women. Far more men work for septic cleaning services than women do, and I'm sure women are happy about that fact. Far more men are bricklayers than women. Far more men are working for as firefighters than women, and, and on the list goes. And this is to be expected. Men and women are not the same. They, there's a different wiring. There's more of a nurturing wiring in general towards women because God has made women that way, which means you would expect the more nurturing and caring job ac- occupations to be more selected by women, like the job of a nurse or a daycare worker and things of that nature. Whereas jobs that involve um, more unpleasant things, <laughs> more unpleasant in terms of septic and, and plumbing and things like that, they're that more in that kind of field are going to be more are going to be more occupied by men. Jobs that that tend to favor physical strength, like maybe a firefighter or something like that, or a bricklayer or, or things of that nature, are going to tend to favor are, are going to tend to favor men. This is not due to discrimination. The Bricklayers Association is not anti-woman. That's not what's going on here. And nurses are not anti-men. It's just, it's just there, there are differences between men and women that account for these disparities. It is not primarily due to discrimination. Or you can even get into things that may seem silly to some, but I don't think are unimportant. When you look at professional sports, when you look at golf, for instance, you have the vast majority of golfers are white. Now, this, this doesn't get rid of the fact that perhaps the greatest golfer is Tiger Woods, a black man, but the vast majority of golfers are, are white. When you look at the, when you look at the NBA, uh, the, the, there's a dis- disproportionate, disproportionate number of black athletes in the NBA. Is this a sign of black privilege or some kind of anti-white racial bias that favors African-Americans? No, that's not what's going on there. Uh, when you look at rap and R&B artists, the vast majority are black. Now, when I grew up, not recommending him, but Eminem was was one of the was one of the best known uh, you know rappers, and he was white. So so certainly there's exceptions, just like Tiger Woods with golf. But generally speaking, the, the vast majority of, of rap and R and B artists are are black. Is this due to some kind of black privilege or racial bias towards black people? No, there there are simply cultural differences where that kind of music is going to be something that is more popular in a certain demographic than in another demographic, and that's just the way it is. That, that that's just a fact of life. Now another important issue to talk about is from. This survey is from the U.S. Census Bureau, 2013 to 2015, the American Community Survey. And this is dealing with median household incomes in the United States by ethnic group. So median household incomes by ethnic group in the U.S. Again, this came out around 2015. What you're going to hear very often is, is two facts from this kind of statistic. Number one, the median household income for African Americans is $35,000 per household, $35,000. 
the average median income per household for white Americans is about $60,000. So $35,000 for African Americans, $60,000 for white Americans, almost double median household income for white Americans than for African Americans. Now, what is often said here is, well, this is clear evidence of, of discrimination. This is clear evidence of the effects of white supremacy, both past and present. This is clearly racism. This, this is clearly discriminatory. That's why these disparities exist. Otherwise, why would, they, why would they exist? Now, again, I want to repeat. I am not saying that past racism in our country, past real white supremacy in our country, has nothing whatsoever to do with these numbers. I'm not saying that. That's not what I'm arguing. I'm saying, is it the only or even primary factor for why these numbers are so different? And then number two, is current white supremacy and current white toward black racism also a major contributing factor to these data points? If, if, if uh, yeah, well, we could say more about that in a moment. So let me, let me, let me explain why this is not so simple. 35000 per median income for African-Americans, but... For Hispanic Latino Americans, it's 43,000. For Nepali Americans, it's 43,000 as well. For Bangladeshi Americans, it's 50,000. For Thai Americans, 55,000. For the average American, it's 56,000. For Indonesian Americans, it's 57,000. For Korean Americans, it's 59,000. This is per household median income. For White Americans, it is 59,500, so let's say 60,000. For Pakistani Americans, it's 66,000. For Chinese Americans, it's 69,000. For Malaysian Americans, it's 70,000. For Japanese Americans, it's 72,000. For Sri Lankan Americans, it's 74,000. For Taiwanese Americans, it's 82,000. For Filipino Americans, it's 83,000. And get this, for Indian Americans, it is $100,000. So, if I can actually show you on my iPad here... You can you can see the list for yourself. African-Americans, yes, it, it is a lower number. It is at 35000 uh, per median income. For white Americans, you're dealing with about $60,000. But if you look above it, there's a whole list of different ethnic groups who are making a good bit more. And uh, you have their Indian-Americans making uh, almost twice as much with $100,000 per median income. Now, if we were to argue that all disparities are due to discrimination, then we would have to say not that simply white Americans are benefiting from so-called white privilege and, and, and black Americans are suffering from the effects of racism. We would have to also say that Indian Americans and Filipino Americans, Taiwanese, Sri Lankan, Japanese, Malaysian, Chinese Americans, all making more than the average white American uh, family, the, what, what, why are they making more? Is that due to some kind of Asian privilege or some kind of Indian American privilege or Filipino American privilege? Is, 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 the, is there a systemic racism against white Americans and black Americans favoring in, uh, Indian Americans or Filipino Americans who are making significantly more per median income than white Americans? No, it, it is obvious when looking at a data point like this. That discrimination is not the only, and I don't think the primary factor in what is going on here. I, I, I think that is a major distortion of what is actually happening. To make this point, uh, Thomas Sowell, in his book that I mentioned in Sunday School, Discrimination and Disparities, uh, deals with an important factor that is often overlooked, which is average median age of an ethnic group in the United States. Listen to this. In the United States, for example... Income differences between middle-aged people and young adults are larger than income differences between blacks and whites. So do you hear that? 
how old you are has more to say with how much money you make than whether you're white or black in our country today. Your age is more important than your ethnicity because younger people just in general have less money. That's obvious, I hope, right? When you're a college student, at least for me, you're barely able to, 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 to pay for anything. And when you're newly married, my goodness, when we were newly married, I mean, we had nothing. We were scraping things together, trying to trying to make things work. A lot of people are eating ramen noodles when they're when they're early married in their early 20s or later 20s. But then hopefully, uh, and at least in terms of uh, in terms of generalities, the older you get, the more financially stable you are able to be, the more money you're able to make, the more you're able to save or even invest and, and prepare for the future. So generally speaking, the older you are, the more money that you have and the more economically stable you are. Again, those are in generalities. Now, Thomas Sowell adds this. In the United States, for example, the median age, listen to this, of Japanese Americans, the median age of Japanese Americans is 51. And the median age of Mexican Americans is 27. Median age for Japanese Americans, 51. Median age for Mexican Americans, 27. He says, how likely is it that these two groups or others would have the same proportions of their populations equally represented in occupations, institutions, or activities requiring long years of education and or long years of job experience? Is it surprising if Hispanic Americans are not as well represented as Japanese Americans in the professions or in the managerial careers for which long years of education and experience are usually required? How many 27-year-olds of any ethnic background meet requirements for being CEOs in civilian life or generals and admirals in the military? Even if Japanese-Americans and Mexican-Americans were absolutely identical in everything else besides age, they would nevertheless differ significantly in incomes and other age-related outcomes. Racial, ethnic, and other groups are, of course, racial, ethnic, and other groups are, of course, seldom, if ever, identical in everything else. That makes the prospects of equal outcomes even more improbable and disparities in outcomes even more questionable as automatic indicators of discrimination. In terms of capabilities... A man is not even equal to himself at different stages of life, much less equal to the wide range of other people in varying stages of their own respective lives. In these circumstances, equal rights and equal treatment of all does not mean equal performances and virtually guarantees unequal performances and outcome. This does not mean that either genes or discrimination can simply be dismissed as a possible factor in any given circumstance, but only that hard evidence would be required to substantiate either of these possibilities, which remain testable hypotheses without being foregone conclusions. Now, if you got lost in all that, he's simply saying if the average age of a Japanese American is 51 and older people tend to have more money, and the average age of a Hispanic American is 27, almost half the age of a Japanese American, then by that one data point alone, you would expect Japanese Americans to have more financial security and more median, a higher median income than Hispanic Americans just by age alone. Now, again, I am arguing against univariate analyses, one reason explanations for these kinds of things. Age is not the only factor going on here uh, at all. Let, let me mention another thing. This starts to get us into a little bit more of a controversial issue, but I think it is an absolutely undeniable issue, which is cultural differences. Cultural differences are a real factor in disparities between different groups. Cultural issues are not of no consequence. So, so here's what I mean. I have a friend of mine who I know, uh, who, I, who I see around, who uh, works with my brother. 
he, he grew up in China, a wonderful guy, loves the Lord, godly man, married uh, here in the Athens area. I think he has a number of children. Love this guy. So he grew up in China. His parents to this day are still basically, I believe, atheist or agnostics, and they live in China to this day. He is a super sharp, super responsible, great guy. But here, here's what he tells us. He, he told his whole testimony and story. I've heard it now several times. At school, he's come and shared it with students. Here, here's what he tells, me, tells us. In Chinese culture, the amount of time that you go to school is really unbelievable to American students. I'll, I'll get the specifics wrong here, but I believe he said something like they go to school, I think it was six days a week. I think that's right. I could be wrong. It may even be seven days a week at certain points, but I think about six days a week, and you go to school, and you're at school from early in the morning until, I think, 9 o'clock at night. So maybe it's 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. is the school day, and then you spend the rest of every waking moment trying to keep up with your homework and your studies. He said, this is around the clock all year long, basically, throughout your life growing up. He said there is tremendous social pressure to succeed academically, and there is tremendous shame attached to those who do not succeed and are not able to get good jobs as they get older. So he says, in that kind of culture, okay, and, and this doesn't mean every single person from that country thinks this way, but we're speaking about generalities here. That's what this whole thing is about, is, is median, uh, it's about averages and, and generalities. In that culture, the pressure to succeed is immensely stronger than amongst the average white or black American in our country today, which means when immigration happens and, and when, when Chinese Americans uh, come here or Japanese Americans come here or things like that, coming from that cultural background, the pressure and the uh, and the cultural push to succeed and to work hard academically means it is not surprising to find that Chinese Americans do better in academics in general than white Americans or black Americans. It is not surprising to see Asian Americans uh, making more money and working harder and being more diligent. In Asian culture, again, I'm speaking with 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 genuine uh, with, with generalities, but they're true. There is a much higher um, nuclear family. In other words, there's, there's much less single parenthood. You have a much, uh, much less out-of-wedlock birth rate. You have all kinds of things that are going on there. And I'm not in any way discounting the fact that China has had a horrific past with abortion and with single-child uh, homes and things of that nature. I'm not, I'm not discounting that at all. But what I'm saying is when you have more intact families, when you have strong work ethic, when you have a high push towards education and success— I'm not even saying that's godly. I, I think that those things uh, can become idolized in cultures. I'm not saying this is automatically Christian or godly. I'm simply saying it's true. What you're going to find is that when uh, Chinese families move to America and they become Chinese Americans, you're simply going to find higher levels of success in education. You're going to find uh, Chinese Americans uh, in proportion uh, working with better jobs, higher paying jobs, working harder, and you're going to see more and more success in those areas. Amongst Asian Americans, you see a much smaller amount who are guilty of violent crimes, murders, burglaries. Far less Asian Americans are in prison than white or black Americans. This is not due to a kind of Asian American privilege. This is not due to some kind of anti-white, anti-black, pro-Asian discrimination. This is due, in large part, I'm going to say this because it's a fact, it's due to a cultural difference. The cultural milieu in which Asian Americans and China, Chinese Americans grow up is simply puts a higher priority on education and hard work and, and, and working hard. And so, therefore, you're going to see higher success rates in education amongst that population in our country, and that's exactly what you see. This is why it is no accident in the statistic that I was mentioning 
that you're going to see far higher rates. Let me get it here. Chinese Americans in general make over $10,000 more per household income than white Americans. Japanese Americans make, let me get it, 13 plus, uh, make about $13,000 more per household income than white Americans. Is this due to discrimination against white people towards Asian Americans? No. No, it is not. If anything, it is probably harder to immigrate here from uh, Asian cultures and to try to m get things going from scratch. That, that, that's almost a dis disadvantage. It's hard to uproot from whatever country you're in and move to a new country and to try to begin there. But why, are the, why, why is the median income higher? Well, in part, it is due to cultural differences. And in part, it may also be due to median, median age differences, as we mentioned, between, say, Japanese Americans and Hispanic Americans in our culture today. Now, continuing our discussion here about disparities and discrimination, I want to quote from an article written in the Wall Street Journal. This is July 2018, written by Jason L. Riley, who is himself an African-American man. This is a sensitive issue. It's got to be talked about. This is, this is the title. Let's talk about the black abortion rate. And then underneath that title, in New York City, thousands more black babies are aborted each year than born alive. I've looked into these statistics. The first time I heard this, I, I, I couldn't believe it. I did not know that this was actually the case, but it is true. In New York City, thousands of more black babies are aborted each year than born alive. More black babies are killed in the womb every year than born alive in New York City. So half, actually it's more than half, half of the black population in New York City is being murdered each year in the womb. Is this a serious justice issue for the Christian? Yes, it is. And I don't even believe Jason Riley. I don't even know that he's a Christian. I have no reason to believe he is a Christian. If he is, I would, I would like to know that. Let me quote from the article. Quote, again, it's written by a black man. This is what he says. Quote, nationally, black women terminate pregnancies at far higher rates than other women as well. In 2014, 36% of all abortions were performed on black women. This is not just, uh, listen, to, listen to the statistic. 36% of all abortions in 2014 were performed on black women, who are just 13% of the female population. 13% of the population, but having abortions at almost three times the rate of their population size. 36% of abortions, 13% of the female population. The little-discussed flip side of, quote, reproductive freedom is that abortion deaths far exceed those via cancer, violent crime, heart disease, AIDS, and accidents. So abortion deaths far exceed cancer deaths, violent deaths, heart disease, and accidents in the black community. Quote, racism, poverty, and lack of access to health care are the typical explanations for these disparities. Now, this is the whole point here, right? So why is there a disparity? Why are African-American women having abortions at such higher rates than white or even Hispanic women, which we'll talk about? Well, racism, poverty, and lack of access to health care are the typical explanations given. In other words, racism seems to be the fundamental reason. The reason why is because of racism. Quote, but black women have much higher abortion rates even after you control for income. In other words, even when you make adjustments regarding income, you still have a disproportionate number, a dis disparate number of, of African-American women who have abortions than of other ethnic groups. Continuing, quote, Moreover, other low-income 
ethnic minorities, so other low-income ethnic minorities, who experience discrimination, such as Hispanics, abort at rates much closer to white women than black women. So although Hispanic women are similar in terms of income in our country, they abort at rates much closer to white women than black women. So you can't simply say that lower income is the reason because it's not true in the Hispanic female community, but it is true in the black female community. I'm ending that article. Now I'm going to read from another article. This is from the National Library of Medicine, NIH. This article is from August of 2020. Quote, this is called Perceiving and Addressing the per Pervasive Racial Disparity in Abortion. Quote, black women have been experiencing induced abortions at a rate nearly four times that of white women for at least three decades and likely much longer. You hear that? Black women have been experiencing induced abortions at a rate nearly four times that of white women for at least 30 years and likely much longer. That's a major disparity. What's causing that? Why Is it simply discrimination and racism that's causing that? Why is the, why is the number so different? This matters. This really matters. So let, let me quote another, um, another data analysis point here. This is from the U.S. Department of Justice. Now, this, this one's old. From the, from the U.S. Department, Department of Justice, the Office of Justice Programs. It's called Black on Black Homicide, A Psychological Political Perspective. This came out in 1983. So I'm going to read a more recent one in a second from 2018, 19, uh, 2019. But before I get to that, this is from 1983. Quote, Black homicide rates are seven to eight times those of whites though blacks have a rate of poverty only four to five, five times that of whites. Let me read that again. This is from the U.S. Department of Justice, 1983. Black homicide rates are seven to eight times those of whites. In other words, that's a stunning number. Though blacks have a rate of poverty only four to five times that of whites. Abstract, quote, Today, homicide is the leading cause of death among young black men. Homicide, murder is the leading cause of death among young black men and contributes significantly to the shortened lifespan of the black male. This is tragic. And for those who use the tagline, Black Lives Matter, they, they need to be listening to, to this because it doesn't say that white police officers are the primary issue. It says here, quote, in about 80 to 90% of the cases, the black victim was killed by not a police officer, and not a white man or woman, but by another black. So I'm adding words. Let me just quote the article starting this part over. Today, homicide is the leading cause of death among young black men and contributes significantly to the shortened lifespan of the black male. In about 80 to 90% of the cases, the black victim was killed by another black. And about 52% of the murder victims were acquainted with the assailant. So do you hear this here? The leading cause of death in 1983 among young black men was homicide, was murder. And 80 to 90 percent of the black people who were murdered were murdered by not the police, not another white person, but by another black person. And about half the time they knew they, they had known each other, that the murderer and the one who was the victim had known each other in about half the cases. But, but that is a stunning statistic. And again, there's a disparity here between whites and blacks. 
Now, this is from the Department of Justice. 2019 crime in the United States. This is from the official U.S. government website. I'm actually uh, going to read here. This is the 2018 stat, but the 2019 stat is almost exactly the same. I'll, I can read you both of them. In 2018, according to the U.S. Department of Justice, 533 white people were killed by black people. 533 white people were killed by black people. In the same year, 243 black people were killed by white people. So in terms of white people who were murdered, almost twice as many were a black person killing a white person versus a white person killing a black person. That was in 2018. In 2019, it's almost exactly the same. You have um, 566 white people were killed by black people and 246 black people were killed by white people. Again, almost half as many white people killed black people as black people killed white people. And that was true for both of those years, both from the U.S. Department of Justice. Now, that is a major and significant disparity. But to simply come out and say, well, the reason that's true, the reason there's a disparity is because black people are innately racist towards white people, and that's why they kill more white people than white people kill black people, is simply not the way to handle this situation. Again, it is too simple and it is untrue to make that the univariate cause of the data disparity, right? To, to make that the one reason for why there are differences here. So I'm going to read you a quote, and don't throw anything at me here as I read this quote. Listen to this. Quote, But if we, were, if we are honest with ourselves, we'll admit that too many fathers are missing. Missing from too many lives and too many homes. They have abandoned their responsibilities, acting like boys instead of men. And the foundations of our families are weaker because of it. Now, this is the part where you might feel your skin crawl a little bit. Listen, quote, you and I know how true this is in the African-American community. Fatherlessness. Quote, we know that more than half of all black children live in a single parent household a number that has doubled, doubled since we were children. We know, the, we know the statistics that children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime. I'm going to stop the quote for a second. That is stunning and absolutely true. Many people have pointed this out. Children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and to commit crime. In other words, there's a massive disparity here between children who do not have a father and children who do. And the reason is not discrimination or racism. The reason is fatherlessness or a present father. The quote continues, children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of schools, nine times more likely to drop out of school if you don't have a dad in the home, and 20 times, 20 times more likely to end up in prison. This makes me want to weep. I am so thankful to have had a wonderful and present father in my life. I don't even know what I owe to my father being the kind of man he was, loving the Lord faithful pastor, preaching the word, loving his children, raising us in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. I don't even know what I owe to, to God's grace to me through my father being present and loving and pointing us to Christ in scripture. I, I cannot put a price tag on what I owe for my father, owe my father for what he's done. Listen to this. If you don't have a father in your home, 
you are 20 times, 20 times more likely to end up in prison as an adult, as a juvenile, as, as, a, as an adult. That is a massive disparity. But it's not due to discrimination against this boy versus that boy. It's due to whether you have a father in the home who loves you and cares for you and is present. Let me continue the quote. Quote, They are more likely to have behavioral problems or run away from home or become teenage parents themselves. And the foundations of our community are weaker because of it. So this speaker, who I will say who it was in a second, this speaker says the African-American community has been vastly made, in his words, weaker because of what? Fathers who abandon their responsibilities acting like boys instead of men. And he says this is why in the African-American community more than half of those children grow up in single-parent homes, single-mother homes without dad. I'm going to talk more about that in just a second. And those boys who grow up in homes without their dads are, let me say it one more time because we need to know this, quote, children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of schools, and 20 times more likely to end up in prison if they don't have dad in the home. Now, before anybody throws anything at me, I want you to know that was said by President Barack Obama, a man that I disagree with on on many issues. But I completely agree with him here. These remarks were made a number of years ago. I believe it was on Father's Day he actually gave this speech. But he is dead on in his analysis right here that fatherlessness is a plague on the African-American community in our country. All right, I want to point out a few pieces of data that are important here. And I learned this from, frankly, a handful of African-American scholars, for whatever that is worth on this, on this discussion that's who I learned this from originally. So Thomas Sowell and others have pointed this out, that um, if you look at black household income, I believe it's from the year, it's 1940 to 1960. So this is still during segregation. This is during Jim Crow, when there are like legitimate, systemically unjust laws on the books, like actual racist laws on the books. Between 1940 and 1960, black poverty dropped by 40%. That's an astonishing figure. Now, I know, I know you're coming off the, the heels of the Great Depression. You're moving through World War II. But, but from 1940 to 1960, black poverty dropped in our country by 40%. The way uh, some people have put it, and Thomas Sowell talked about this as well, yes, African Americans were put at a massive disadvantage coming out of slavery. Obviously, that is true. But they were able to, like, their literacy, their literacy rates went up by an astonishing rate in a very short period of time. He, Sowell talked about how basically between the Civil War era and the turn of the century. So basically from 1860s into the year 1900, in that, in that relatively brief period of time, literacy rates went in the African-American community from near zero to 50%. In that short period of, what, 35 years? So, so in a 35-year period, literacy rates, I believe I'm getting this right, went from a close to negligible to 50%. That is something that he said we've rarely ever seen amongst any group in all of human history. When have we ever seen a group go from, what, a couple percent to to 50 percent in a generation? That's an enormous leap forward in the black community, which was an amazing thing, which is something that I would like to know more about. 1940 to 1960, black poverty drops by 40 percent. Now, yes, whites were also 
growing uh, away from poverty after the Great Depression at the same time period. But what, what you find out is between the Civil War and the, in the year, say, 1960, African-Americans were growing in literacy at an astonishing rate. And at the same time, they were catching up with uh, white Americans. Their, their, their economic growth actually was, um, by proportion, more rapid than white Americans during the same time period. So, quote, this is Thomas Sowell, nearly 100 years of the supposed legacy of slavery found most black children, 78%, being raised in two-parent families in 1960. So you come out of the Civil War, you move into even racist segregation laws on the books. They exist. They're there. This is, this is you know, after uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, this, this, this is moving into, like, we're still in real racism going on in our culture during that time period. Nearly 100 years after, uh, excuse me, quote, uh, uh, nearly 100 years of the supposed legacy of slavery found most black children, 78%, being raised in two-parent families in 1960. So the black home was largely intact in 19, by the time you get to 1960. 78% of black children were growing up in two-parent homes, 1960. But... 30 years after the welfare state found the great majority of black children being raised by a single parent, 66%. Now, if you're not following that, this is a piece of information that needs to get, I think, more of a hearing in the whole why are there so many disparities in our culture today. So, in 1960, 78% of black families were intact with a mother and a father in the home. 78%. And their economic growth was obvious in the 20 years leading up to that, and their literacy rates had gone up far uh, in that last century, unimaginably in in, in such a short time. So the African-American community was making great strides economically, in terms of literacy, in terms of their intact homes. Things were moving in a very good direction. And then the year 1960. Now, I could go on and on about this, and we probably all have our thoughts about the 60s, and those of you listening who lived through them have a lot more thoughts than I do because you lived through them. But I will just say this. 1960, you see JFK uh, become president. His vice president is Lyndon Baines Johnson, LBJ. JFK is assassinated on November 22nd, 1963. LBJ becomes president. And although he is only elected once, he's elected in a landslide in 1964, and then he refuses to even run for re-election in 1968 because of his vast lack of popularity due to the Vietnam War, which was a true disaster and, and a major failing of his presidency from any accounting, I would, I would believe. So he refuses to run again uh, after the chant in our nation becomes, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? That, that was the, the Vietnam ruined his chance of reelection. But that being said, Robert Caro has written tremendous books. I've got them somewhere behind me on, on LBJ, and I haven't been able to read nearly as much of them as I want to. But from what I picked up on from Robert Caro's biographies, don't get lost on me here. LBJ grew up in dire poverty in the Texas Hill Country, which is basically west of Dallas and Fort Worth and Houston in the middle of nowhere, where there was no electricity. And he, long story short, when he came to power and he cheated and lied and stealed and was a very immoral man, but he did whatever he could to, to become part of the Senate and then Senate Majority Leader uh, in the 1950s and then suddenly Vice President and then, uh, by a turn of events, President. 
but he he had the ability to manipulate and control political power in a way that no other president has since he was president. Uh, he, he was truly a master of political power, and I mean that in the sinful sense. He, he would manipulate and lie and cheat and steal and do anything he could, but he knew how to make power do what he wanted in our country. And he was able to push through the um, he was able to push push through the welfare state in the in in the in the nineteen sixties. He did it, I believe, because of his poverty growing up, with a real desire to help lower income people. I mean, it seems like that's what he really wanted to do, but he did not realize the effects that that legislation would have in the long run, especially on minority communities and especially on the black community. So listen, 1960, 78% of black families are two-parent homes. They're doing better economically than you could imagine. 40% reduction in in, uh, black poverty in the last 20 years. You get to 1960, LBJ comes in around 1965, so right in there, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, welfare state is pushed through. Quote, 30 years after the welfare state found the great majority of black children being raised by a single parent, 66%. So within 30 years, we went from 78% of black families being intact to only 44% to, excuse me, only uh, 34% being intact. That is a, that is an astonishing change. So if, if you've zoned out here when I was talking about LBJ, I hope you hear this loud and clear. 78% of black families had a two-parent home in 1960, just 30 years later. In the year 1990, only 34% of black families are now two-parent homes. That is a monumental change in a tiny amount of time. In 30 years, from 1960 to 1990, black homes went from 78% with a mother and father to 30%. 4% with a mother and father. Now, we just heard from former President Obama that if you grow up in a single-parent home with only a mother and without a father, let me say it one more time, children who grew, this is quoting Obama, quote, children who grew up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of schools, and 20 times more likely to end up in prison, end quote. The welfare state did something to the black community, and we are still reaping the consequences. Let me show you a graphic for those who are watching this. I don't know if you can see this. If you look at this here, you've got here the growth in unwed childbearing by race in the U.S. from 1931 to the year 2008. Hispanics are not tracked until about the year 1990 or the late 80s, as you can see there. But as you look at this chart, what you'll see is unwed childbearing by race. Well, African-Americans had... In the teens, up until about the year 1960, uh, white Americans were very low percentage, maybe 3 4% up until the 1960s. And you'll, what you'll see is, in the mid-1960s, two things happened. Number one is the sexual revolution, which allowed for uh, unwed childbearing to increase, and also the welfare state. Those two things happened in the 1960s, and you see a massive spike for both ethnicities going up. For white non-Hispanic people, by the time you get to year 2008, 28.6% of white Americans are born into single-parent homes and astronomically, tragically, unspeakably in black non-Hispanic homes, 72% of black children born in 2008 are born into single-parent homes, 72%. More than double the amount of white homes. Now, 
if you look at this, uh, if you look at this here, y you'll notice again, right in uh, here is when the sexual revolution and the welfare state come through right in the middle of, that, of this decade. And you see the numbers spiking here off to the side at that time. Those numbers are not spiking due primarily or even, I would say, in any kind of major way to discrimination or racism. Here's why I say that. Again, I know it's tacky to show you a graphic on my iPad, but I, I, we got to talk about this for a second. As you look at this graphic, when was racism worse in our country? Was it worse before the Civil Rights Act? Yes. Racism and Jim Crow were legal until the 1960s. So when you look when racism was actually legal in our country, Jim Crow time, you actually have black and white families that are far more intact. Then at the, at the, at the end of the Civil Rights Movement, with the overturning of Jim Crow— you have single parenthood skyrocket in both white and black, and you also see Hispanic communities in the following years. So we cannot say that racism is the primary reason why the black median income is as low as it is. And we cannot say that the reason why there's mass incarceration rates that disproportionately have African-Americans in prison versus white Americans in prison, we cannot say that that's due primarily to discrimination or racism. Why do I say that? It's not the legacy of slavery that is primarily the result of so many black men in prison today and the low income of black families today. Again, speaking in generalities, speaking statistically with the data. It looks to me like the sexual revolution and the welfare state in particular are the reason why single motherhood rose across all ethnicities in our country to some degree or another. But why did, it, why did single motherhood grow so vastly and disproportionately in the black community than in the white community? Well, the welfare state is an extremely strong contributing factor by, I think, any honest analysis. Why do I say that? In the welfare state, it is literally true that a woman was paid more money by the government if she had children with no man in the home and no husband. If a woman was unmarried and living alone, she would get more money from the government to care for her children than if she was living with a husband in the home. Now, in some cases, the government would provide more money than her husband or boyfriend could even provide if he was working. And in other cases, it's just true that whatever you financially incentivize with government money, guess what? you're going to get more of. And if African-Americans, although doing a great job catching up economically in the 20 years leading up to 1960, and doing a great job catching up in terms of literacy and education in the last century since the Civil War, the black community was making massive strides educationally, economically, in terms of literacy. There were massive strides. They were still behind white Americans. Of course they were because of their, 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 their ill treatment in the past. There's no question about that. But their families were largely intact, and they were catching up. They, they were proportionally actually making uh, more rapid economic growth than white people, proportionally speaking. They were still behind white people, but they were making more rapid economic growth than white people by proportion. And so at that very moment, two things show up. One, the sexual revolution, which targeted everybody with immorality and, un, un, uh, you know, and unwed pregnancies and, and then the demand for abortion. All that stuff was taken off in general. But why did it disproportionately target the black community? Because the black community was still more in the poor category than the white community. And that is due in, in, in many ways to past racism. I'm not questioning that. But when lower income people are getting paid 
money from the government to remain single mothers and to not be married because you make less money from the government because of welfare. Whatever you financially incentivize, you get more of. It's just a fact of human nature. And so what happened was because African-Americans were disproportionately lower income than white Americans at the time, although they were catching up, they were still disproportionately lower income. Welfare comes along from LBJ trying to help lower income people and minorities. I think that was what he was trying to do, although he certainly uh, believed some racist things. There's no question about it. He was still trying to help poor people. And so the welfare state thought if, if, if we essentially give money from the government to these people, it will help them. But the but it ended up having a terrible, 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 at least by them, I'm sure, an unforeseen consequence, which is they started incentivizing single motherhood financially with government money. And because there was a disproportionate number of black families who were poor, there, was a dis there were a disproportionate number of black families who were incentivized to remain in single motherhood. And therefore, you literally financially incentivized fatherlessness in the black community in a disproportionate way. That's what welfare did. And that's why, just to show it one more time, you have a disproportionate skyrocketing of single motherhood in the black community starting in the early to mid-1960s. And when you see where welfare comes into the picture, the numbers go off the charts, especially for the black community. Taking the black community from, again, uh, 15 to 20% single motherhood to 72% fatherlessness in the black community in 2008. Now, let me just tell you something. If 72% of any ethnic group is without a father in the home, if 72% of any ethnic group is without a father in the home, then Barack Obama, no, no Bible-believing conservative here, Barack Obama would say, let me read it one more time, children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty. And commit crime nine times more likely to drop out of schools and 20 times more likely to end up in prison why are there far more black americans in prison than white americans by proportion because black americans commit far more crime proportionally than white americans far more homicides are committed proportionally by black americans than white americans far more uh, crimes that get you in prison are committed by black americans than white americans this is not because black people are genetically inferior to white people that is what the kkk said that is true white supremacy that is wicked evil and to be renounced that is not true it's not true at all it's also not true that discrimination is the reason why black people are you know discriminated against and put in prison at far higher rates no the reason why there are more Black people in prison is because black people disproportionately commit more crime, especially violent crime, especially murder and homicide, those things. Why do black men commit disproportionately more homicides, especially gang violence, which is a plague in the black community, Why, especially in certain major cities like Chicago, and Los Angeles and other places? In, in New York City, for instance, the, 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 the amount of black people who commit violent crime versus white people is an astonishing disparity, astonishing disparity. White people commit a, a fraction of the percent of violent crime and murder versus the black population. It's, it's astonishing. Why? Fatherlessness. I think fatherlessness is, if there was one thing that we could do other than just converting everyone to the gospel, outside of conversion to Christianity and of a revival of the Christian religion, which would be the number one thing and the most important thing, fixing fatherlessness in the black community would, I think, be the number one thing that would turn this whole ship around. 
The reason why there's disparity in income, the reason there's disparity in imprisonment, is because there is a disparity in fatherlessness. And when you don't have a father in the home, you're less likely to finish school, you're less likely to care about your grades, you're less likely to get a high-paying job, you're more likely to commit crime, including theft, arson, all the things, mur murder, homicide, all the things like that, you're far more likely to commit, uh, and you're 20 times more likely to end up in prison without a father in the home. So there are massive disparities in our culture today. But to say that the disparities are only or primarily due to racism or discrimination is simply a false belief promoted by a false and damaging and dangerous and deadly ideology known as wokeism or wokeness or critical race theory or, or uh, critical social justice that we want no part of. It is not biblical justice to force equal outcomes by manipulating the system to make sure everything ends up the same. That is not actually justice. That is actually showing a kind of unbiblical favoritism to force equal results even when they are not to be. Th th that is not right. And so I hope this is helpful. There's a lot more that can be said, and there's a lot more I, I want to learn about this issue. But to simply say that white supremacy is the reason why the disparities exist between white and black Americans is not true, and it is extremely misleading. And there are far better answers to these to these questions than, than what is often said at a popular level in today's media. Thank you for listening.